Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, welcome if you are new to the chapel. We're glad that you're here. Very special welcome to you. I invite all of us to turn to the book of Ruth. We are today midway through a six-week study in this marvelous little book. It is, as we have noted, a love story. And some of you in the past couple of weeks have wondered, well, when are we going to get to the love story part? Well, it's here. It has arrived today. So uh, get ready. I, I've noticed in the last, well, since I've become an adult, somewhere in, in there, there's been a change over the years. And there's been an increasing trend, need, desire, pressure, whatever we want to call it, when people get engaged to have something that is unique and memorable. And so whether it is a proposal on the beach at sunset or whether it's a billboard that has, you know, please marry me on it or whether it's um, a plane flying a banner, you know, will you marry me or uh, the ever popular scoreboard uh, jumbotron at Bush Stadium. It seems like everybody has to have something and, and with the advent of social media, that pressure seems to have gotten even bigger and more commonplace. You've got to have something that is unique and big enough that it is worthy of posting on your ex. Yeah, that's after my time. Back when we were young, you just asked somebody, you don't want to marry me, do you? <laughs> and they're like, no, not really. <laughs> okay, thought I'd ask. <laughs> Well, through the centuries, there have been quite a number of strange proposals out there, but perhaps none stranger than the one that we will encounter today uh, here in Ruth chapter 3. Likely, this will be one of the weirdest ones you've ever heard of. Chapter 1 of this book, just by way of review for those of you who may be uh, just joining us today for the first time or uh, whether you're here or online, chapter 1 of this book was gloom and doom as two widows, Naomi and Ruth, left from Moab to go up to Bethlehem, which was Naomi's hometown. Returning there, she had been gone about 15 to 20 years, and as Naomi returns, she is bitter against God because of her lot in life. She has lost her husband, and her two sons have all died. She's returning with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is accompanying her back, but they are in poverty and coming back to her hometown, and she says here, as she comes back to Bethlehem, I come empty. But while she comes bitter and angry against God, Ruth is coming as a Moabite woman, coming and she is looking for shelter and refuge in God, while Naomi is bitter against God. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, the dark clouds start to rise a little bit as our widowed damsel in distress in this romance story, Ruth, as 
She meets Prince Charming, a man named Boaz, as she goes to glean in the fields to get food to eat. And the field is owned by this wealthy bachelor named Boaz. He's a kind and generous and godly man, which is a rarity in, well, in every age, but especially in this age, the time of the judges in the Bible. And Boaz meets this wonderful Moabite widow whom he has heard a lot about because it's a small town. As we come to chapter 3 this morning, a couple of months or so, more or less, have passed since we ended chapter 2. Chapter 2 began early in the barley harvest, and it and we are now at the end of the wheat harvest. It's been, like I say, around a couple of months. And we actually have real, no real information about what has transpired in these weeks that have gone by. It doesn't really give us any details. I have the feeling, it's, and it's worth exactly that, but I have the feeling that Ruth and Boaz have had interaction. They've had some conversation and contact over these past weeks. But I would imagine that it's also rather limited. Basically more of what we have seen in chapter 2, which is essentially this. It is brief contact. It is polite. It is gracious But there is proper reservation and proper distance between them. And, you know, it's been more just little little bits of contact. If there's some attraction between Ruth and Boaz, it's not apparent on the outside. It's not apparent to to those who are watching them during the day. And and neither knows it from the words of the other person. They haven't let each other know. And so this love story has moved so far. Those of us who've been tracking it, trying to say, you know, where's the love story? It's been (sighs) yawn. This movie is kind of dull. (laughs) Where's the love story? But it's about to change. Moving from zero to 60 in the course of one night. Verse 1, chapter 3, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whom the young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until after he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, that's Ruth, replied, all that you say, I will do. Naomi lays out a plan. Naomi has real concern for Ruth. She loves Ruth. Ruth loves her. She is concerned for Ruth because Ruth has come here to Bethlehem to devote herself to caring for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth is concerned because she really thinks that Ruth deserves a life of her own. Ruth deserves to be cared for, provided for, to be loved, to have a husband, to have children. And so she says, shouldn't I be concerned about you? 
And she sees that God has brought this wonderful young widowed daughter-in-law of hers into contact with a wonderful, godly, generous man. They've met and she's just itching to see more happening. And Naomi seems to know what we suspect, that they are impressed with each other, Ruth and Boaz. They've noticed each other and they really like the other. They're attracted to each other. Mothers have a way of knowing these things, seeing these things. But neither one is taking the initiative to move this relationship forward. And Naomi wants to know, is there a future in this relationship? And by the way, we could say that she has the right to do this as now the de facto head of this family, even though there's only two, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. In those days, parents took the initiative and would set up and arrange marriages for their children. So we could say that she has the right to be thinking, what should I do? And Naomi is thinking something needs to be done, so she decides to act. Now, by the way, there, another possible motivation here is that Naomi and Ruth's situation may be getting worse. It's about to take a, another bad turn. There have been a lot of bad turns in their, in their life. But when we get to next week and next chapter, it appears that one of two things is about to go down. Either Naomi is selling their property, being forced to, in order to get in some income to survive. They're down to that's the last thing, the last asset, the last resource they have. Sell the family farm. Or, more likely, it's about to be repossessed. It has been mortgaged probably by Elimelech when they went to Moab and now the bill has come due and they have no way to pay for it and it's going into foreclosure. A very contemporary story. So Naomi decides to act. We've noted in the last couple of weeks that it is good to wait on the Lord, to rest in Him rather than fretting and worrying Rather than conniving and scheming, it's good to wait on the Lord, to trust Him about such little things like what are we going to eat, what are we going to wear, where are we going to live, who we're going to marry. Actually, those aren't little things. Those are huge things. But Jesus said, don't worry about them. He said, your Father knows what you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Trust the Lord with these things. We noted that is an important principle and that's part of the lesson of this book, to trust God's providence. But also, as we noted last week, we are to trust God, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. We are to take advantage of the opportunities that God puts before us and we are to do what we can. And that is what Naomi is doing right here. The clouds lifted last week as she began to realize God hasn't neglected us. He hasn't forgotten us. And she's learning to trust God, but she's saying, you know, it's, there is something that now that I can do, and it's time. There's an appropriate time to take some action. And so Naomi says to Ruth here, she says, what about Boaz? He's 
one of our relatives. He's family. He's some relation to their deceased husbands. That detail becomes important here in just a little bit. Boaz, she says, will be at the threshing floor tonight. A threshing floor is not something, I don't think any of you have a threshing floor. You might have a dance floor in your house. You probably have a floor, but you don't have a threshing floor. A threshing floor isn't in your house anyway. It's outside of town, usually on top of a hill. It's a solid floor of some sort. And it was a resource that all the farmers in the area shared. They would take turns uh, reserving the threshing floor. Then they would take their harvest. The harvest has now been brought in, the wheat and the barley, and now it's time to go to the threshing floor, take your harvest, and you thresh it. You thresh it by beating it to knock the grain off the stalks, or sometimes they thresh it by having ox or cattle walk on it, and that threshes it, or sometimes they have a sled called a sledge that's drug behind the ox, and, they, and that as well goes over that grain and knocks the, the kernels of grain off of the stalks. Then when that process is finished, they take and they winnow the grain, taking pitchforks and throwing it up in the air is one way, and, and the, they're up on a hillside, and the e- afternoon and evening breezes or winds really come blowing up the hill, and it gets quite brisk, and when you throw it up, the wind blows the stalks away, and the grain, which is heavier, falls down to the ground. And when it has been winnowed, you have grain left, and without all the stalks and the and the grass. When that's done, they've finished and they they gather all the grain into a huge pile, a mountain in the middle of the threshing floor. By now it is late evening or early night and they celebrate. The harvest is finished, the work is done, they eat and then it's time to sleep. They sleep usually just around in strategic spots around this mountain of grain. There they, they stand guard. They're, keep, they're protecting the grain from animals. They're also protecting the grain from people. Remember, it's the time of the judges, lots of thievery about. And so they protect it, and they're waiting till morning because it's too late to move it. In the morning, they'll load up all the grain in their wagons and get out of the way for the next people who are coming to use the threshing floor. That's the scene. So Naomi says, Boaz is at the threshing floor tonight. Here's the plan. Take a bath. Good plan. (laughs) Take a bath. And then uh, after you do that, she says, says here, anoint yourself. Ruth, I want you to go into your stuff and I want you to dig out that bottle of perfume that you squirreled away. You know, the perfume that, that I like that you used to wear back there in Moab when, our, when my son was still alive. It's midnight in Moab. <laughs> you know? And so you wear that midnight in Moab perfume and then, then I want you to, as she says here, put on your cloak. And it's a, apparently a difficult phrase or some wording here to translate. And so some of the scholars say what it's saying is, she says, put on your cloak, get a large outer garment that you put on, on top of your clothes, one that will help you be not recognizable. I want you to go in disguise. Okay. And that may be what she's saying. 
However, some of your Bibles translate it this way. She says, put on your best clothes. Or as we, as well, they say in Oklahoma, I'm from Texas, we don't say it there. But in Oklahoma, they say, get schlepped up. Okay? Get your good duds out. That's what we'd say in Texas. Get your good clothes out. Put those on. You know, get yourself really dolled up here. And that may be what she's saying. Some of the scholars as the, and commentators, as they look at this, say that they think what has been happening here is that ever since Ruth's husband died, she's been wearing mourning clothes. Now, mourning clothes for the benefits of young people is not pajamas which we wear to school and we wear to Walmart and wherever else we're going. That's not the mourning clothes she's talking about. The mourning clothes are the clothes that a widow would put on after her husband dies. You put on black, you put on a veil, you put on whatever it is that, and it says, I am in grief because of the loss of my husband. I am in mourning. And it also says, not only am I in mourning, it, it says, by the way, I'm not available. I'm not interested. And a lot of the scholars are saying that what's happening here is that Ruth has been wearing the clothes of a widow, the clothes of a mourning widow. And, and Naomi is saying, hey, Ruth, it's time to, wear, to take off the clothes that say, get away. And it's time to put on the clothes that say, woohoo, Boaz, <laughs> I'm here, I'm available, I'm interested. I think she might have something there. And then she says, go to the threshing floor. Now watch from a distance and note where Boaz lies down. And then after it gets dark and after everybody's asleep, you go over and you go and you uncover his feet and you lay down there at his feet and he'll take it from there. And Ruth says, sure, got it. And we go, what? This is weird. This is strange. And contrary to what some folks try to read into this text in our day and time, Naomi is not trying to put Ruth up to going and doing some sort of seductive measures here, trying to lure Boaz into a relationship. That is not what is happening here at all. As we'll see very clearly in a moment, what Naomi is doing is she is having Ruth propose marriage to Boaz. Naomi knows that because Ruth is a widow, that Ruth has a unique opportunity to be the initiator and to propose to a man, not just any man, but to this man because, as we read earlier, he's a relative. Hmm. But why did they do this in secret? Why, why all the secretive stuff, the sneaking around and doing this in the middle of the night? What's up with that? Well, I can't say for sure from Scripture. Again, I have to make some presumption here. But I have a feeling that... It's been difficult, if, if not impossible, for Ruth and for Boaz to have any real conversation directly 
and privately without causing a stink and a stir and a kerfuffle. (gasps) In the culture, that was not a normal thing. And in this situation at Boaz's fields and in the job site and in the workday, there really is not opportunity for that to happen. I think that's part of it. And I also think a bigger part of it has to do with, well, have you ever seen a video of some guy who in the mall or at the ball game on the jumbotron or somewhere he proposes to his you know to the girl and she says no if you've ever seen that it's not a pretty sight it's pretty sad and pathetic <laughs> how embarrassing to everyone And what I think is going on here is Naomi wants to be very careful. Boaz is not only a prominent man, he's a good man. He's a genuine, kind, caring, and godly man. And she doesn't want to risk exposing him to embarrassment. What if he can't or won't? What if he says no? And so I think that this this whole midnight meeting is exactly for the benefit of protecting both Ruth and Boaz from embarrassment, from gossip, and not put any pressure on Boaz. You've got to do this. This is a private request. So here's the proposal, verses 6 through 9. So she, that's Ruth, went down to the threshing floor, and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And again, we read this from a 21st century perspective and we go, this is a marriage proposal? How does this work? Well, Ruth says, in essence, cover me. She puts herself at Boaz's feet and that's the place of a servant, not the place of a lover. She puts herself at his feet. She uncovers his feet to get him to wake up. Sure enough, it's chilly at night. And he he wakes up, his feet are cold. And as he realizes the blanket's not quite there, and then he realizes there's somebody there. There's a woman down there. And he's shocked. This has never happened before. Who are you? I'm Ruth. And she says, spread your wings over me. Some of your translations have cover me. It's really the same thing. Say like a bird covers its child with a wing. She says, you cover me. It's, if we were going to put it in our way of talking, we'd say, rescue me. Save me. By no coincidence, Ruth uses the same terminology that Boaz used back in chapter 2 when he first met Ruth. And he said to her, you remember, God bless you for all you have done for your mother-in-law. And 
I've heard about you and how you have come here to seek refuge under the wings of the Lord. Hmm. Ruth takes that same terminology because it's the same concept. She says, I'm coming to ask for your protection. I'm coming to ask for your rescue. One commentator said, it was an ancient Eastern custom that is still practiced among many Arabs and Jews today for the groom to spread a cloth over his bride as part of the wedding ceremony. It was symbolic to say, you're coming under my protection. You're coming under my care. I will provide for you. I will, I will take care of you. I will watch over you. In other words, it was connected. That whole terminology was connected with marriage. And so what really Ruth is saying is not just cover me, protect me, rescue me. What she's saying is, hey, big boy, marry me. And then Ruth stated the reason for her request. She said, for you are a redeemer. And we wonder, what does she mean, redeemer? The word here in Hebrew is the word goel. It's a word that's translated in some of your Bibles there as redeemer. In some of your Bibles, it's translated differently. It's translated as a relative or in older English or Arkansas English, a kinsman, your kin. And in some Bibles, it's translated with both of those as a kinsman redeemer because both of those concepts are in that one word. A relative who sets free. A relative who looses someone from bondage. And she says, you are a goel, a redeemer. In the law, the Old Testament law that God set for his people, for the Israelites, God said that for family members would have certain obligations to other family. And the closer you are in relation to family, the more significant and the more important the, these obligations that you had for family. And in the law, the, it talks about this Goel, this kinsman redeemer, which was a family member and certain obligations that they had. We're going to talk more about that in two weeks as we wrap up this study. But I just want to call attention to two aspects of that law about the kinsman redeemer that are relevant here this night with Ruth and Boaz. The first aspect is that a kinsman redeemer was responsible to buy back or to redeem family land that had been sold or forfeited because of poverty. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, in other words, to get himself to survive, and now they don't have the property, then his nearest redeemer, his nearest kinsman redeemer, his nearest goel, should come and redeem what his brother has sold. It's exactly the situation that Naomi and Ruth are in now. They're losing their land. They need a goel. And Ruth says, would you be our kinsman redeemer? Another part of this law, we find it talked about over in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it says there that it gives, that law gives a widow the right to go to 
her brother-in-law, the brother of her deceased husband, and to demand that he, or possibly a close relative, marry her and provide an heir to carry on the family name. It was a means to to provide for the widow and to protect the family inheritance. And so just like that, by calling Boaz her kinsman, her redeemer, she's laid all of her cards on the table. Says, here I am. You know our situation. We are poor. We're in need. And I want you to be my Goel, my kinsman redeemer. Buy back our land and marry me. So it's a proposal of marriage. There we go. Well, what does Boaz do? Next verses. The response, verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. How does Boaz respond? Well, in essence, he can hardly contain himself. He says yes, but if I were going to put it, I think the way that he's saying it's, Oh, yes! Yeah! Oh, yeah! He's excited. He is flattered. And we discover a big reason why Boaz has not done anything so far. I mean, why hasn't Boaz, since he's a rich bachelor guy, why hasn't he seen this lovely young lady and gone, whoa, and gone and talked to mom and said, hey, I'd like to marry her, and struck a deal? Well, we discover partly why right here. If I can, again, put it in my words, I think he'd say, he'd say I can't believe you want me. I'm not the young, dashing kind of guy that a beautiful young lady like you would normally want. I I, I can't believe you haven't gone after the young guys, whether they're rich or poor. Instead, you've come to me? He's blown away. He says, you want me to marry you? You betcha. (laughs) You want me to take care of you? You got it. He is so excited. Boaz and Ruth have finally expressed their hearts. I think they've admired each other from a distance, both thinking how wonderful the other is. Now they've laid it out there. She says, hey, I want you. And he goes, yeah, whoa. (laughs) I can't believe you do. Otherwise, I would have asked you, you know, the first day I saw you. (laughs) Yeah, they've laid it out there. The stars are out. It's a beautiful night. The music is starting to play. Their hearts are pounding. And we know that what comes next, according to Hollywood, is they fall into each other's arms in passionate embrace and there is passionate sex. That's what Hollywood says comes next. It's a powerful romantic moment. And after all, they have feelings, deep feelings for each other. They have opportunity. And who will know? And in this godless age of the time of the judges, who will care? 
But it's not a Hollywood moment. Because Boaz and Ruth know that somebody does care. God cares. And you know that God has said that we're to be different. He calls us to something different as his people. He calls us to sexual purity. God is not against sex. He's not ashamed or embarrassed of sex. God created it. He designed it to be pleasurable. He designed it to be good. He designed it to be enjoyed, but only within the bounds of marriage. Boaz and Ruth determined somewhere along the way in their life to follow God rather than follow their culture. To listen to God rather than listen to their their cravings and their desires. And while our culture says, why not? And why not now? And the culture and society at the time of Boaz and Ruth was the same way. Why not? And why not now? Whenever you want. In our day, they say, you know, if it feels good, do it. And it's exactly what they said in the time of the Judges. The last verse in the closing of the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. What you feel like, what you want to do, you do it. God says something different. You know much of the heartache, I'd say most of the heartache in our culture, in our society, in our families is a result of people listening to their hormones and listening to the culture rather than listening to God. It breaks up marriages and homes and destroys lives. There's always a cost to doing things our way rather than doing things God's way, which is why the Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Friends, I I know some of you here today are maybe tempted. You're in a relationship where you're being tempted to get involved sexually with someone with whom you're not married. Don't go near there or even near there. If you've been involved or are involved with someone outside of marriage in a sexual relationship, God's word is very clear. It is wrong. And the proper action is quite simple. Stop. Quit. Get out of that. Do what needs to be done. Either quit your immoral behavior or get married immediately or break off the relationship completely. Boaz and Ruth weren't disinterested in sex. Next chapter, right after they get buried, they hop right to it. But until then, it just isn't right. And they cared too much for God and they cared too much for each other's honor to violate that. Boaz says of Ruth, all Everybody in town, they know that you are a worthy woman, a woman of honor. He says, you're, you're my hero. It's another way of using that word. 
He cared too much. He guarded her honor and his. And now just as they recognize their mutual love for one another, they've expressed their desire to get married and this love story is coming to a, you know, just, whoa, a really cool part. We discover there's a huge problem. Big problem. Verse 12. And now it is true Boaz says that I'm a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until the morning. Boaz says, this is awesome. I couldn't be more excited. But by the way, there is another redeemer, another relative, and he's closer related than I am. And so because of that, he has first dibs. So in the morning, if he'll take you, then let him have it. But if not, woohoo, we're going to get married. Whoa. Does anybody sleep that night? I don't think so. I think they are all just, <gasps> they're excited. At the same time, they're petrified. Boaz is thinking, oh, I've been waiting, you know, I'm an, old, I'm an older guy, old bachelor dude, and everybody thought this guy's never going to get married. Here, finally, the woman of my dreams, and I'm second in line. He's excited, and now he's petrified. And she's petrified. I came here to propose marriage, and now I find out I might end up getting married to somebody else. We don't even know who somebody else is. He's that bad. So they're just, their emotions are just. <laughs> Naomi's back home going, oh, what's happening? <laughs> Nobody slept. What a long night. Verse 16, a new day dawns. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. She held it out and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went to the city. She goes home. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, that's the mother-in-law, Naomi, said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she, that's Ruth, told her all that the man had, had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she, that's Naomi, replied, wait, my daughter, until we learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Lots there just want to say that she gets home. Naomi says, how did you fare? Literally, the Hebrew doesn't say, how did you do? What the Hebrew says is, who are you? The question is, are you still my daughter-in-law or are you Mrs. Boaz? So how did it go? And Ruth tells her the story. What I realize in this is how much Naomi has changed since the story started. Naomi started as a bitter woman, bitter against God, and a total pessimist. God is against us, and everything is bad. You know, it's when's the next thing going to fall? (laughs) And the next thing just fell. And did you just notice? Naomi is like, okay, let's wait and see how it goes. 
Last week, Naomi began to realize, and she declares, blessed be God because he hasn't forgotten us. And now Naomi is like, God hasn't forgotten us. Matter of fact, God is going to work this out. She's totally at peace here. Okay, let's see how the day goes. Naomi has finally learned the lessons that we saw before. And this book has a lot of repetition. The same lessons keep coming back. Trust and rest in God's sovereignty and in his goodness. Naomi knew God was sovereign. She had to remember that God is good. She's learned her lesson, and now she's at peace. How does it, ha- how does it work out? Well, you have to wait till next week. Ruth is a love story. But it's much more than a love story between Boaz and Naomi. God is the master author. And a thousand years before Jesus Christ, God put this story together and puts it into his word. So that you and I, when we read the word of God, can realize as we read this story that God put it there as a little, see, I told you. And a little foreshadowing of what's to come. And what's at the heart of this book is that word that we introduced today, and we'll talk about more in two weeks, that Redeemer, kinsman Redeemer. Over 20 times, some form of that word Redeemer shows up in this short little story. That's the main point. The point is that like Ruth, you and I were helpless and hopeless. We were in a deep world of hurt, bound by sin and death, and we desperately needed rescue. We needed redeeming. And then God became man. Jesus, one of us, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. He became one of our relatives in order to buy us back, to redeem us from sin and death and hell and give to us eternal life. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross and through the resurrection. Jesus longs to redeem you, to rescue you from sin, to give you new life and eternal life. All that you have to do is do simply what Ruth did right here. To recognize, I got nothing. And just as Ruth came to Boaz, we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I got nothing. I desperately need rescue. Save me. And Jesus says, yes. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will not turn away. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the scripture says, will be saved. God put this beautiful story of Ruth here as a little picture of what was going to come in Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? I trust this morning that you are believing in Jesus Christ, that you've trusted him as your Savior. And if not, I pray you don't let the day go by. 
before you call upon him and say, Lord, I realize I need a Savior. Jesus, save me. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous story. This marvelous love story. May it remind us first of Jesus and may every one of us put our faith and trust in him. May it also remind us that you are the sovereign God and you're good. May that enable us to not worry and fret over the things in life, but rather to trust you, to do as Jesus said, to seek you first and trust that all these other things will be provided to us. Thank you for your wonderful promises and your wonderful word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.